0: Hello and welcome. This is Dr. Stuart Telly for History 490, and I'm going to be doing the preliminary introductory lecture. I haven't decided yet if I am going to do this in person, in class, or if I'm just going to have you listen to it beforehand. That said, though, I've also provided this to the people who listen to me on the podcast, so this is going to be one of those joint ones. Um, I'm not actually doing a PowerPoint for this one, so um, hopefully we get a pretty good understanding of it. So, uh, Yeah, let's get started. So this is History 490, specifically History of Christianity Within the United States. So what is this class? Well, frankly, it's an examination of the impact Christianity has had upon the United States of America. Now, let's break down those terms a little bit, because I've thrown out a lot of things there. Uh, The first one is impact. What do I mean by impact? And that's kind of a general sense of direction. In terms of religion, not just religion, but things like culture, politics, rhetoric, It's very hard to deny that the United States has been greatly shaped, particularly the way that the United States has developed in terms of religion and culture and politics and rhetoric and all these other things, by Christianity. (laughs) Now, I will admit that impact is kind of hard to quantify. It can be hard to quantify impact, but it's also readily apparent. It's readily apparent. And um, the the next thing I want to argue or define is what is meant by Christianity, uh, Christianity. Now, Christianity is a very broad term right there, uh, particularly in terms of the United States. Um, this is not a theology class. Now, I'm not saying it's going to be devoid of theology. I mean, we have to talk about theology. And I'm not really here to argue semantics about definitions about who is not isn't a Christian, what is and isn't Christian belief. Um, talk to your faith leaders about that. Talk to your priest or preacher or, you know, synagogue guy, rabbi. Synagogue guy? Really? Rabbi. Talk to your rabbi or whatever about that sort of thing. But in general, for, for the sake of this class, I, I go with Christianity is, are Christians or people who self-describe themselves as Christian. That can become a very uh, volatile term, I get. I, I get that once we get into definitions and semantics. Uh, There are various religious sects and, you know, Christian denominations or groups that uh, some Christians may or may not call Christian or, you know, are they, are they Christian? That's where we get into theology and, you know, is some, what, is it the belief that somebody says, you know, is nominal Christianity Christianity? Uh, Just by saying you believe something doesn't actually mean you believe something. That's That's a much deeper conversation for a, I would say a different time, but, uh, for the sake of this class, generally those who call themselves Christian are those that I will consider Christian. Now, it is true, the United States does not have a state religion. The United States does not have a state religion. The, you know, the, the Constitution famously says that the you know Congress shall not make any laws regarding religion. We do have separation of church and state. But it's foolhardy to believe that Christianity isn't the religion of a huge percentage of the population yeah, you know, from its beginning, Christianity has been a very central religion for a huge portion of the population. If we're talking like you know colonial times, you're talking about ninety percent of the population, close to ninety five percent of the population espouses some form of Christianity. Even today, I, I want to say the the most recent you know polls say that about sixty percent, of the U.S. population, self-identifies themselves as Christian, and that's by far the smallest it's ever been in U.S. history. I kind of liken the fact that the United States doesn't have a state religion, but Christianity is very important, to the fact that you know the United States doesn't have an official language. Uh, Congress and you know the Constitution does not state out this is the official state language of the United States. But it's foolhardy to say that uh, you know not knowing English or English has not been a very key language. For the United States, considering, you know, it's in pretty much all of our major documents and it's the language of most of the people. Speaking of people, I put a great emphasis upon this idea that I call popular piety. Uh, Popular piety is the belief of the general population. Uh, Something that we're going to explore as we go through this class is that there can be a disconnect between the pulpit and the pews. You know, just because this is what the religious establishment, this is what the preachers, this is what the the, the various denominations and their leadership boards, bishops, whatever you want to call it, uh, just because something is preached doesn't believe it is something that is necessarily followed by the general population. If I was just focusing upon, like, the institutions and the... Um, you know, the, the bigger denominations of their governing board, that's a different class than this. This is more about, like, what is your average American believing, and how does it get mixed up into this ether? Because there is um, there can be a disconnect between the pulpit and the pews. Uh, probably the easiest one to get into is um, Catholicism and birth control, Um you know the catholic church has had a very staunch solid unchanging stance upon birth control they they don't uh, they don't agree with birth control they don't they don't, go to, they don't condone the use of birth control however i believe something like 90% of all practicing catholics use some form of birth control so once again it gets into this whole you know even though the, the, the priest and the hierarchy of the church is saying one thing what people are actually doing can be a very different one and that's something you need to understand about America in general. And to put it mildly, I find that nothing in American belief ever really disappears, ever fully disappears. There are things in American belief, things in American religion, that never really go away. They never really go away. There's still, like, elements of it kind of just within the ether. You know, yes, elements might ebb and flow in popularity— and there's always new developments, but nothing really ever truly disappears. You can take some of these, you know, beliefs that we're going to be talking about from, you know, 400 years ago, and you're going to see there are germs of it, there are elements of it in United States popular piety to this day. So in some respects, there is a sense of continuity and "quote unquote" traditional belief within Christianity in within the United States. But <laughs> at that same token, and kind of in a more accurate sense. Nothing also stays the same. It's kind of this weird quantum pendulum where nothing ever changes, but nothing ever really stays the same. Nothing ever disappears. (laughs) Nothing ever is fully removed, but nothing ever stays the same. You know, a lot of times um, religion, particularly with Protestant, oftentimes evangelical Protestant Christianity, uh, there are a lot of beliefs that get touted as ancient or, you know, this idea of biblical, which we're going to get into that a lot here in this class about what does one mean whenever they say that a belief is biblical, quote-unquote? But a lot of these times that they say that, you know, this is something that has been established, you know, Christian dog doctrine, dogma, whatever, for, for centuries, millennia, a lot of times it isn't. A lot of times it isn't. Now, this is not to claim that those beliefs are not invalid, nor are they without merit, but claiming something is older than it actually is tends to give credibility in a country that tends to be pretty conservative, but also embraces the new and radical. That's something kind of interesting about the United States. Um, as a society, the United States tends to be pretty conservative. Don't rock the boat too much. Uh, lowercase C conservative. Uh, not uppercase C, not conservative party, because party allegiances you know, ebb and flow all the time. The United States tends not to be a rock the boat too much type of country, but at the same time, it does tend to embrace new ideas, new technologies, new ways of thinking. And so it's a very common American technique to like kind of for lack of a better term pretend your old idea sorry pretend your new idea is old so people go along with it and it looks less radical you're going to see that not just in religion with the united states but a lot of different ways this idea that oh we've done this before ergo we can do it again this new idea isn't all that new and radical even though it might actually be now there's a lot of examples of this with belief and we're going to be talking about a lot of them throughout the semester uh, a very easy one, a very good example of this, is the idea of the the rapture. The idea of the rapture, a something like Left Behind. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with Left Behind, that was a series of books within the 90s that later became a media movie thing. Uh, they've made two movies have been made about Left Behind, one starring Kurt Cameron, uh, the other one starring Nicolas Cage, and it was a reboot, and actually, I just heard, as of yesterday, they're making a third Left Behind movie uh, starring Kevin Sorbo, sawing Kevin Sorbo. Now, if you're unfamiliar with this idea of the rapture, uh, pre-tribulation rapture, the idea is basically some Christian sects, and it's really fairly American, uh, a lot of, it's not a very world-held uh, belief outside of areas that have been greatly influenced by American evangelicalism, but basically some Christian sects believe that prior to the end of the world, you know, the Book of Revelation type stuff, uh, Christians are going to be taken away from Earth by God to escape the tribulation and the worst parts of the Book of Revelation, So this idea that, um, you know, in the Left Behind books, they basically say that, you know, a decent proportion of the Earth's population disappears. You know, all the Christians do. They just leave piles of clothes everywhere. And this idea is as soon as, like, half the church is raptured up, sorry, not half, but the whole church is raptured up, uh, you're going to have seven years of, like, really bad stuff, and then the world's going to end, Jesus comes back, that sort of shtick. Now, this is a very new development. Um, Christianity speaking, this is a very new development. Uh, Honestly, prior to John Darby in the 1830s, and we're going to talk about this later on when we get to the 1830s and Second Great Awakening, uh, most Christians don't really have this sort of belief. And actually, even after Darby comes around, uh, most Christian denominations within the United States are more post-millennialists, which is nobody's really spared of... uh, from you know judgment or, or tribulation, everybody goes through with it, and also this idea that uh, the world is going to keep getting better until Jesus ultimately comes back to do a millennial kingdom. Now, this is not saying they didn't believe in the book of Revelation; they did, of course. You know they believed in the book of Revelation in a manner of speaking, but they don't really believe in this rapture idea. Now you might be wondering, well, you know this rapture idea is it biblical? Um, not explicitly. <laughs> uh, this is where we get into tradition. This is where we get into tradition. Uh, the idea of this kind of pre-tribulation rapture. Uh, you, you, you take in parts of Revelation, and also some of Paul's letters, and even some parts of the book of Daniel, and they kind of come up with this amalgamation of an idea, Darby comes up with this primarily, of that, you know, the, the Christians are going to be caught up into the air, they're sucked up, well, not sucked up, but like, you know, kind of, I guess sucked up, you know, brought up into, into, into the sky to be with God for seven years before really bad things happened. Uh, now, like I said, they're kind of taking bits and pieces of the Bible to kind of put it together. Um, that's not unheard of within Christianity, I should mention. There's a lot of church tradition, a lot of things that are held as traditions within the church that aren't explicitly biblical. Now, t- I'm not saying they're anti-biblical or go against the things that are in the Bible, but they may not be explicitly mentioned in the Bible. Um, probably the easiest one to give this, the best definition of this, is the idea of the Trinity, Uh the Bible itself does not mention the idea of a Trinity God. I mean, yes, it mentions God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, but they don't mention it as, like, this one tribune, like, one God in three type of thing. That's something that really comes in later in church tradition. But you'd be hard-pressed to find a Christian church that doesn't believe in the Trinity. not saying they're impossible. There are some Christian denominations out there, uh, smaller sects generally that do not believe in the Trinity, Uh, oneness gospel, that sort of shtick. But it's not a you know, not completely unheard of to have elements of church tradition. So, like, early church founders, all right, like, if you look in the Book of Acts, they have no concept of the rapture. They, they do believe that the earth was ending very soon. Uh, you know, Jesus will be coming back very, very soon, if you read some of the, uh, you know, Book of Acts and a lot of Paul's letters. But, like, if you look at something like the Middle Ages, Martin Luther, they're not really talking about this idea of the rapture. In fact, fun fact about Luther Uh, Luther hated the Book of Revelation. (laughs) I wouldn't say hate, that's a strong word, but uh, Luther once said he wished that the Book of Revelation would be thrown into the sea, basically to to prevent all the bad things that had done, you know, people getting tripped up and hung up on end-of-the-world stuff rather than, um, you know, just helping out their neighbor in this time period. But this idea, this, this really eschatological idea, really gains traction in the United States where it comes to denominate several evangelical sects. I should even mention the Pilgrims and the Puritans, who are extremely apocalyptic. I mean, the, the Pilgrims and the Puritans, who are very es- eschatological. They're super interested in the end of the world. They don't have this idea that the devout are going to be spared from the tribulation, or the idea that people are going to be you know caught up into the air to be with God. They have no concept of it. Yet, if you talk to various evangelical circles, they're going to talk about you know this idea of the rapture as though it's been around since the Garden of Eden, since like you know the, the beginning of time. Now, like I said, this becomes more rooted in American belief than any other country, which makes sense kind of due to the, the Puritan emphasis upon um, eschatology. That's a very big part of American belief. I'd say that's actually one of the biggest parts of American belief, even outside of Christianity. Uh, the way that people talk about anything is often in eschatological end-of-the-world terms. Think about the way that people talk about global warming or something. Not downplaying the threat of global warming, but the type of language that is used for a lot of different things, very apocalyptic-sounding. Now, let's get to this big thesis. Let me get to the big thesis, the big point of this class. The big point of this class, the thing I want you to think about as we go through this entire class, as we discuss various parts of American religion, is that it is impossible to divorce a belief system from its location and place in history. I'll repeat that a little slower. It is impossible to separate or divorce a belief system, a religious system, from its time and place in history. You can't do it. Everything with religion is tied to time and place in some form or fashion, okay? Although some more ardent believers might try to act as though their beliefs come straight from the Bible and are timeless, the fact is there's way too much variety and quirks and different elements and different beliefs and, you know, sometimes verses and books are focused more than others to, like, all be, like, one clear, straight everything is the same. You know, to talk about one's Christian faith, one has to keep into mind Time, place, other elements too. I even if you might say that it's the same beliefs, the way that it's practiced and espoused, um, it's changes and it changes considerably. It changes considerably. Now, I am not saying this invalidates belief. I'm not saying that in the slightest. Okay. Um, you know, you can have strong, ardent beliefs, and that's fine. But you just need to acknowledge that sometimes, and not sometimes, but often other forces are into the mix. Uh, Prima example, when you talk about religion of any sort, not just Christianity, but religion of any sort, oftentimes you're bringing in family dynamics. You know, did you learn this as a child? Uh, did you learn it from your parents? Maybe you've had people who've gone on, but you know, people who've passed away that you learned it from, that sort of shtick. And when you're talking about religion, oftentimes it's impossible to divorce where you learned it from and this context in which you learned it from from the belief itself. And that's kind of what I'm getting into in this class is these various elements. Uh, I'm assuming if you're taking this class, you have some form or fashion of belief. Maybe you're a diehard Christian. Maybe you're a diehard Protestant. Maybe you're a diehard Catholic. Maybe you don't believe in much of anything. Maybe you're just a, I go sometimes on Christmas. Maybe you're a... Hardcore Atheist. You know what? That's fine. I'm. This class is for everyone. We're just kind of exploring the beliefs. Um, hopefully you're able to kind of, you know, communicate your beliefs a little bit better, maybe understand a little bit more what you do or don't believe, and just see how it's much more complicated and complex, I believe, richer of a picture if you get into some of the context of it. So uh, now that we've done that, let's talk about what this class isn't. Let's talk about what this class isn't. Number one, and probably more than anything else, um, This class does not condemn. This class does not condemn. Uh, Look, I'm not going to blast a group of self-described Christians as, quote, not true Christians. Uh, That is a phrase I hope you will never hear in this class. Now, are there some beliefs that I don't subscribe to? Absolutely. Uh, But I'm really not here to damn them for their convictions, particularly in terms of modern-day beliefs. Let me kind of explain that a little bit more. Uh, There are different, I mean... I often say that if I do my job right, you know, um, I do have political and religious beliefs, but if I do my job right, you're never going to know them. Uh, I will admit, I do have some various religious beliefs. And, and you know, there's some things I believe more than others. But in the scope of this class, we're not really here to say, like, well, these people aren't being really good Christians or they're not being Christians or their convictions are wrong or evil or whatever. I'm not saying you have to agree with them, but I'm just saying I'm not here to really, like, blast or condemn. Uh, very big on tolerance. You know, this, this needs to be a very tolerant class. Uh, and I really want to extend that to you and your classmates, okay? Look, if you're taking this class, I want you to be tolerant of those around you because we are going to be having a lot of discussions. <laughs> and inevitably, we're going to talk about something you do or don't believe, and that's fine. You know, like I said, maybe you're taking this class because you're incredibly devout. Maybe you're atheist and want to bash religion. Who knows? Maybe you're sent to spy on me, and you want to find out once and for all what my religious and political beliefs are. Regardless, we have to be civil, Okay? In some form or fashion, we have some version of faith or belief, even if it's a belief or faith that there is nothing, you know, that there is nothing, that, you know, we are atheists. In some form or fashion, it is a faith or belief. At the end of the day, there's very, it's hard to be empirical or have objective evidence when you talk about things like religious belief. We all believe something, even if we believe nothing. And it's just really hard to speak definitively about this. Now. Am I going to blast people for using religion as a prop to support their bigotry? I, I guess I could, but I can only, I'm only going to do that in a historical sense, if that makes sense. Um, let me give an example. All right, if you know anything about me, if you've ever had a class with me, you know I have very little tolerance for racism. Um, I, I am a white man, but I teach a lot of African-American history. I'm very big on hip-hop. I have very low tolerance for racism. I don't like racism whatsoever. Now, do I know that, like, historically speaking, if we're talking about the, you know, the ancient, not the ancient past, but, you know, a couple hundred years ago in slavery times and whatnot, that people use Christian belief to justify things like slavery and segregation and the like? Yeah, I I do recognize that. There are, we're going to talk about examples about how people use Christianity to justify segregation or slavery. Okay, do I agree with that? No, I do not agree with that. Hell no, I don't agree with any of that. I don't believe Christianity should be used to justify slavery or segregation. The problem is, would I say that having such belief strips one's faith of validity? Um, I'm not in a place to do that, especially historically speaking, because then you get into like all these other elements of that it's a time and place. It's it's impossible to judge people based upon the morality of today, just based upon today's standards. It's hard to judge people that way and to like condemn them for the same way. Now, am I saying I agree with them? Oh, God, no. But I'm not going to be like, you know, yeah, could this fear okay make me a hypocrite? <laughs> You're like, yeah, like, yeah, I, I don't like racism by any form, but I'm not going to say that somebody who said the subject then wasn't, quote, unquote, being a really a real Christian. OK, they will. They are self-describing themselves as a Christian. Now, I believe that that's the way they're acting as being very Christ like? I would not agree with that. Do I believe that's a very good, valid belief or biblical belief? Not necessarily. But I'm not saying, well, they're going to hell because of that, or like that type of shtick about that, or their faith was not real, or they weren't a real Christian, because they call themselves a Christian, and for the sake of this class, most people who call themselves a Christian are Christian. So, that said, yeah, that, that's what we'll be talking about. Um, also, I should mention, this class is not a theology class, all right? This is not a theology class. This is not a seminary class. We're probably going to have some seminary speakers come in, but it's not a theology class. Like, we're going to be talking about theology in a historical context all the time. Like, I'll be talking all the time about what people believed in various time periods. But it's not Bible study, okay? This is not Bible study. This is not like a, you know, here's what you believe class, what you need to believe class. Like, I'm going to expect you to, like, know basic theological concepts. We're going to go over some in a little bit. But things like salvation, sin, general generic Bible passages, generic Bible studies, But I'm not going to be asking you, like, all right, you need to read these Bible verses and come back, and we're going to talk about the real truth in the Scriptures here, all right? Nothing wrong with that. If you're a Christian, you probably do that in some form or fashion. A lot of times, if you're a very devout person, you probably have answers in mind for the stuff I'm asking, but we're not going to be doing that in class, all right? I mean, if you want to bring in Bible verses, feel free. That's fine. I mean, I might allude to more than a few in the class, but this is not like a Tully mandates you read the Bible type of thing. Uh, the other thing this isn't, the other thing this isn't, is um, this isn't a place to proselytize, all right? Please don't try to convert your classmates. This is a history class at a state school, all right? Do I have my own beliefs? Sure, uh, but it's not my job to impress them upon you, all right? Like, do I have biases? I absolutely have biases, but I try to be open about them. Uh, as you haven't already told, my big bias is I believe racism is bad. I have very low tolerance for racism and that sort of stuff, and so. Yeah, like that's 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 one of my big biases. Now, like I said, we're going to have outside speakers and a lot of them are going to be religiously affiliated in some form or fashion. But the, I I've already vetted them. I've already talked to them and I've told them all do not proselytize. Do not try to convert people. Do not try to say that, you know, you need to join this belief system that whatever. Like I'm going to let them provide their contact information if there's information you would like to know more about their beliefs or you, you know, you do want to get more personal about it, that's absolutely fine. But aside from like letting you know their email address or letting them provide an email address or something for you, this is not the venue for that. All right, so don't try to convert your classmates. All right, I mean we're going to have a lot of good debate. I hope we're going. I'm counting on good debates, and, and I do expect your personal beliefs to inevitably rise. You know, I, I'm going to be trying to be closer to the vest about my personal beliefs, but you can be feel free to talk about whatever you want with your personal beliefs, but but be respectful. All right. Don't belittle your classmates because of what they believe, or try to insist they convert to whatever you believe. That's, that's a different thing altogether. Now, the way that this, this class is going to work out, it's the framing device is biographical. Each week, I'm going to focus on one or two figures who may or may not be super well-known. Uh, I'm trying to go for lesser-known figures. Uh, we're not going to go for your Billy Grahams or your uh, uh, Billy Graham or Martin Luther King type people. Uh, I want to know, I'm going to focus more on those who are not as well known, but have a very deep impact on the development of American Christianity. Now, to be fair, it's not just biography. This is mainly a framing device, all right? It's a framing device. Usually each week or each lecture, I'm going to kind of open with one person, talk about their life a little bit, and then we dive into the depth, dive into the depth. Uh, Why am I doing this? Because this topic is really, really, really big. I don't know if you know this, but... Religion in America is a very, very big topic, and it's a very complicated topic. And frankly, I had to figure out something to, like, structure this class, because it has to make some sort of sense, and I'm keeping it chronological, so it's not too unwieldy. Uh, this course could easily be two or even four semesters long, with no repeats. I could have easily done this class two full years, no repeats, and not cover all the interesting topics. Like, seriously, there are so many different elements of this. Like, for instance, uh, when I first proposed this class, I was going to call it Religion in the United States History. But that got way too broad, way too quick. And so then I narrowed it down to Christianity, which, honestly, I'm probably going to, like, narrow it down even further to, like, just say Protestantism, because um, I'm going to be the first to admit this class is skewing very heavily towards Protestantism. Now, why would I say that? Well, kind of like how English is not the official language of the United States, but super dominant... Protestantism has never been the primary, sorry, Protestantism is not the official religion of the United States, but it is the primary religion of most U.S. citizens. Uh, Still to this day, about two-thirds of the population call themselves Christian, and about two-thirds of whom call themselves Protestant. So if you're looking at the United States as a whole, about 66% of the population calls themselves uh, Christian, and about 40-some-odd percent of that 66%, sorry, of two-thirds of that 66%, so odd percent in general, uh, call themselves Protestant. Now, as I said, that's actually kind of low compared to most history, where through most of U.S. history until relatively recently, the number of people calling themselves Christian is about 90%. So it's actually gone down quite a quite a bit. But it's still, Christians make a majority of the country and a plurality of everybody in the United States. Now, it's actually kind of interesting is that the number of Catholics has actually stayed pretty steady throughout U.S. history. Um... Going anywhere from 20 to 25% of the U.S. population is Catholic. The Protestant number is the one that's really fallen. Um, at its height, Protestantism was about 70 to 75% of the U.S. population. Now it's about 40% of the U.S. population. So still a very large plurality, but not a majority. Now, I was born in South Louisiana. I was born in Baton Rouge. I was raised in Baton Rouge. I, I'm very familiar with Catholicism. I used to sing in the uh, Cathedral Choir my senior year of high school. But I'm going to admit, uh, that's not really my faith background, and I really can't speak on it with any authority for this semester. If this class becomes popular, and um, you know we're going to do it more in future years, I'm going to add in a lot more about Catholicism, but in this current state, I'm kind of afraid it's going to cause more harm than good. I am not saying that Catholicism is not a very important thing in U.S. history. Oh, my gosh. It most certainly is, particularly around here in South Louisiana, uh, Maryland, other places, too. I mean, especially when we talk about immigrant groups that are coming in post-Civil uh, War. Catholicism is super important in the United States, okay? But this class is not exhaustive, nor definitive. This is a very small segment of a much larger whole. History is big religion is big and even if i were to say like okay we're gonna include some catholicism in here like i would have to narrow it down so much and then there's so many other things like that would probably take this class to like four full years and it never repeats it's a very broad topic and that's one of the reasons why i'm actually facing it, is because it is such a broad topic I do want to have very good questions and discussions come from all this. I mean, I want to get into some different elements. And the main question I want us to really kind of debate, kind of the overarching question of this class, I mean, the overarching thesis is you can't divorce a belief system from its time and place. But the overarching question I want you to think about as we go through all these things is what makes a belief system American? That's the key word there, not Christian. I mean, Christian is, we're getting to what Christianity is in a little bit. But what what makes it American? How does it become distinctly American in this time period? How does it become distinctly American? Okay, so we've got all the disclaimers out of the way. Um, you know, trying to have a good sense of humor about all this because we are talking about people's faith. I mean, I'm not going to belittle faith, but yeah, there. It, it, you know, yeah, we'll try to make jokes when the when the when. <laughs> We will try to make nice jokes whenever the opportunity arises, Uh, more like dad jokes. I'm not going to make fun of any belief system. So, all right, here we go. Let's get into some basics. This is really basic stuff, very basic stuff about bare-bones basics of Christianity and Christian history. You ready? Here we go. So, Christianity is a religion. It's an offshoot of Judaism, all right? Judaism is another belief system, fairly old belief system. Uh, Christianity is about 2,000-ish years old. Judaism is a little bit older than that. A few thousand years older than that. Uh, Judaism holds Abraham as its patriarch. Uh, There's a lot of different things you can say about Judaism, but a pretty big one. It holds that Abraham is its patriarch. Abraham is a guy mentioned in the book of Genesis. Now, interestingly enough, there are three Abrahamic religions. Three Abrahamic religions, which are the three majority religions in the world. I should also mention Christianity is the biggest religion in the world, though Islam is growing quite fast. Um, The three Abrahamic religions are Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, Um, each of whom claims that its God is the same God as the Old Testament, but the others may or may not agree with that assessment. Um, Christians claim to have the same God as the Jews, uh, and Islam uh, claims that Allah is the same God as Christians and Jews, but, you know. They, they, you know, he prefers Islam, that sort of thing. All of them claim that they are the the the, the true believers of the same Abrahamic God. Um, they may or may not agree with if the other people have that. Now, the the Jews, if we're going old school, Israelites, um, they were based in modern day Israel, Palestine. If we're talking biblical history, they've been an independent kingdom for a while before they get taken over by the Babylonians and then the Persians and the Hellenistic Greeks and then finally the Romans. Um. As a religion itself, Judaism puts a lot of emphasis, at least biblically speaking, on the place of Jerusalem, specifically the temple, um, and wasn't really that willing to accept converts. Uh, not that big on converts. If you look at you know Old Testament uh, Judaism, biblical Judaism, uh, look at the treatment of things like the Samaritans and the Gentiles, they're not really willing to take a lot of converts or have people join their number. Uh, by the time of Jesus' ministry, the Jews were steadfast an outside rule. They not rule themselves for several hundred years. Uh, by the time that Jesus is around, um, we're talking the Romans are in control over this Israel-Palestine area. Uh, there is hope for a figure called the Messiah. The Messiah was a prophesied figure who's going to, you know, oust the outsiders and reestablish the Kingdom of Israel, supposedly in the Divinic line. Uh, David is a king of Israel who's kind of a legendary king, kind of like a King Arthur type, because. Um, yeah, if you're talking about the Old Testament Bible, it's talking about stuff. It was written or compiled during the Israeli or the Babylonian exile, whenever the Babylonians had taken them over. And so they're talking about stuff. I mean, that's like 800 BCE, somewhere around there. And they're talking about stuff that happened, like, 600 years earlier for 1400 or so for David. Or not quite that early. That's that's more like Exodus. So a couple hundred years before, though, with David. So they're talking about history for them. And, and David himself becomes a real, like, legendary figure. Anywho, uh, let us <laughs> let me knock it down to the weeds. Uh, so around 2 BCE to 6 CE, uh, dates get kind of, uh, you know, it's probably not zero, but somewhere around there. A guy named Jesus of Nazareth may or may not have been born. Now, this gets into a much bigger question. We're not going to get into in this class, but there's a historical Jesus, the Jesus really exists debate. That's not one I'm going to get into, but just know that exists. Uh, according to the Gospels, he begins his ministry around 30 years of age. Around 30 years of age, uh, Jesus of Nazareth begins his ministry. Uh, I should mention there are plenty of figures who claim to be the Messiah during this time period. Um, in fact, the Book of Acts actually mentions some of them. Um, most of the time, these are military figures. They, they want to cause a rebellion. They want to, you know, get the Romans out, oust the Romans, that sort of shtick. They claim to be a more military leader. Uh, they're going to be this military type king who's going to kick out the Romans. And according to the Gospels, Jesus wasn't like that. He preached mainly through parables. If you look at Jesus' teachings and preachings, uh, mainly parables, which are kind of like um, stories which have interpretations, not quite morals, but just interpretations. Um, not particularly violent towards the Romans. That's something that really makes him distinct from the other uh, messiahs that are running around this time period. He's not very violent towards the Romans. His followers claim that he was the son of God or divine himself, according to the theology of the Trinity, which is a much bigger debate for a different time. Anyway, according to the Gospels, after three years or so of ministry, he is executed by the Romans at the request of Jewish authorities who felt that he was subverting uh, their authority for various reasons. Um, he dies. Three days later, his believers believe that they came back to li- he came back to life. After a month or so, he leaves for heaven. And there's a general sense that he's going to come for a second time, ushering in the end of the world or setting up a new kingdom on the same world. There's a lot of different options. But this so idea yeah, that he's going to come back for a second time. Uh, Following his ascension slash leaving earth, uh, believers of him begin slowly growing, mainly around Jerusalem, being amongst Jewish converts. Uh, Before a convert by the name of Paul slash Saul begins preaching to the Gentiles. And that's really the big change as opposed to Judaism, which is really big on, like, culture and birthright membership. Christianity is now being preached as a conversion-based religion, especially as those taught by Paul. Now, the New Testament is composed mainly of the four Gospels, which are accounts of Jesus' life that were written a century or so after his death is when they're compiled. There's, like, oral tradition beforehand. Uh, You have Paul's writings, which are letters mainly credited to him, addressed to various churches, and a couple other shorter books, mainly credited to other early disciples. There's one that we don't know who wrote it. That would be the uh, Book of Hebrews. And before ending with Revelation, Uh, Revelation is the final book of the New Testament, uh, credited to John, who wrote the Gospel of John, but its authorship is also kind of in the ether as well. Uh, Yeah, so Christianity might have fizzled after that, uh, but it gets a boost whenever the Roman Emperor Constantine converts and later makes Christianity the state religion of the Roman Empire. Now, there are other Christian churches around, of course, but the head of the Roman church becomes known as like the one that everybody kind of defers to, uh, becomes known as the Pope, and he becomes seen as the leader of the entire religion. Now, some of the church leaders don't like that, so they kind of leave, and that is the first real church split, which makes the Eastern Orthodox churches. Um, I should also mention that there is loads of other influence outside of Rome and, like, Eastern, you know, um, you know Turkey, uh, Palestine regions, um, like There's a lot of North African influence. If you're talking like early Christianity, a lot of North African influence. Um, Alexandria was a big, one of the big church centers in this time period. And and even early missionaries make it as far as places like China and India. Like, even within the second century or so, you've got missionaries who have pretty decent uh, Christian communities in those places. Still in time, Rome becomes seen as a center for the church in Western Europe. Becomes seen as a center for the church, period. Um, even after the um, Roman Empire moves east to Constantinople, the church was seen as headquartered in Rome. And that's kind of the case throughout the Middle Ages. Uh, I'm compressing a lot, don't worry. But like some popes in Avignon might agree disagree with that. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church, by the way, uh, Catholic is just a fancy word for universal, controls most of Christianity. You do have Eastern Orthodox and also like Gnosticism and all sorts of other different beliefs kind of running around there. But the, the Roman Catholic Church is the one that has, probably has the strongest hierarchy and the strongest level of continuity of leadership from the, from the Pope to the various churches in various countries. Now, the two big boons for American Christianity both come about 500 years ago in Germany. Uh, if it wasn't for these two things, American Christianity probably wouldn't have developed as the way it did, and you could even argue America might not even have happened. So the first one is the modern printing press. The modern printing press uh, made by Gutenberg. Gutenberg Press, uh, he makes a printing press which makes books considerably cheaper. Uh, much, much, much cheaper under Gutenberg to have a have a printing press. Um, makes books way cheaper. Instead of having a scribe that translates things by hand, you're now able to just have a printing press do it. It's much cheaper, still pretty expensive and still pretty time intensive, but still it becomes a lot cheaper than it had. Uh, the first book ever published was a copy of the Vulgate Bible. Uh, the Vulgate Bible is the Bible in Latin. It's the Bible in Latin. It's one of the earlier translations of the Old and New Testament. Um, it's Vulgate. It's in Latin. Um, we'll get into the Bible itself later. <laughs> the second thing that happens is Martin Luther um, does the Protestant Reformation, which causes a major schism in the church. In fact, pretty much all Christians of the United States can be divided into Protestants and Catholics. Um the majority of whom are Protestants. For a long time, the vast majority of whom are Protestants. Um, even though some Eastern Orthodox beliefs do exist, uh, they're technically Catholic, but it's they're not Roman Catholic, so go figure. Uh, Luther encourages in time the Bible to be written in the common language, or the vernacular, instead of Latin, which uh, most people couldn't understand Latin this time period. Remember, most people can't really read period this time period, but most really can't understand Latin. He starts pushing, you know, the Bible should be able to be read by ordinary people, This ordinary idea, you know, regular folks can read this, make their own religious decisions for themselves. Uh, He becomes very convinced of of faith based by grace, not by works, you know, that people don't necessarily need to jump through the hoops that the Catholic Church is providing. Uh, To be fair to the Catholic Church, they do reform after this. And this is a very big conflict. It's a very big conflict. Uh, The Catholic Church does make the necessary reform, so the divide still continues. What ends up happening, and I am compressing a lot here, uh, religion becomes much more personal. Religion becomes much more personal, much more internalized. Not so much um, the, a communal experience or like you know following the ritual set out by an outside authority figure. Uh, more authority is placed upon reading the scriptures fords oneself. Um, you know now that books are cheaper and probably more often in your own native language. Uh, you know you can now have more individualized beliefs. And so really pushes this idea that, you know, you have more individualistic, uh, more independent, you know, believe for oneself. Don't just follow what other people have told you. Now, this finds fertile ground in Germany and France, Germany and France. Uh, Luther, at his core, doesn't want to leave the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church kind of leaves him. Uh, He wants to reform the Catholic Church, as opposed to what happens in France, uh, a lawyer by the name of John Calvin He's like, nah, we need to, like, separate. We need to separate contentists, you know, just entirely. Uh, John Calvin, he's a French lawyer. He really takes a lead on a lot of different issues within Protestantism. Kind of the big one that Calvin believes, which has a huge impact on American belief later on, is Calvin believes in predestination. Predestination states that God has full authority over who's going to heaven and hell. Basically, God is completely sovereign over every element of humanity Uh, Human beings have no independent will outside of God. If somebody goes to heaven, that is 100% upon what God does on them. Uh, This really nullifies a lot of the need to engage in Catholic rituals and the like. Like, if God ultimately decides who is and isn't going to heaven, what's the point of, like, you know, paying alms or going to mass or what have you? Because uh, you don't really need to do that because God ultimately decides. This has a huge impact on early Puritan belief and therefore early American belief. Other thing that happens uh, is in England. In England, uh, King Henry VIII at first is steadfast in Catholicism, but then he wants a divorce. (laughs) He wants to get a divorce or an annulment from his first wife because he wants a son. His first wife is a little bit older than him. And so basically whenever the the Pope does not give him a divorce, he splits from the Catholic Church to form the Church of England. Uh, The Church of England has the monarch of the head as its head. So to this day, the head of the Church of England is the king or queen of England. So for the longest time it's Queen Elizabeth, now it's King Charles. Uh, the Anglican Ca- church keeps most of the old Catholic rituals uh, for the longest time. The Anglican Church of England is pretty much, I can't believe it's not Catholicism. But it keeps most of the rituals and the, uh, the structure, the hierarchy, but it does make it super English. Really emphasizing the, the national English identity as part of this. Uh, A few decades after this split happens, uh, King James, King James, he was King James of Scotland, now he's King James of England, he asked for an official English translation of the Bible. Basically, like, hey, you know, if we're the Church of England, uh, why are we doing all of our rituals in Latin? Doesn't make sense. We should do them in English because we're the Church of England, by gosh. Uh, That had actually been a contentious issue beforehand in England. Um, Early translators of the Bible into English had actually been executed for trying to put the Bible in English. Still, in 1611, the King James Bible is issued and published. Uh, Ironically, it's 1611 because that's only four years after Jamestown is established in Virginia. So the Bible in the English vernacular and America are very tied together, very much linked together. And uh, that's pretty much what we're going to do with the history for right now. Don't get me wrong, next class we're going to actually get into more real history. But now we're just going to go into some terms. So, basic beliefs about Christianity. Let's get into some basic, not even beliefs about Christianity, but basic terms. Uh, fun fact, as I've done research, there's very little that like links all Christian sects together. Like, seriously, there's very little like belief or ritual or anything that uh, all Christians kind of hold together. But that said, let's get into a couple terms. You might want to know if you're unfamiliar with it. So, Bible. That's a big one. Uh, the Bible. The Protestant Bible... Is made up of the Old and New Testament. Uh, There are sixty six books in total: thirty nine in the Old Testament, twenty seven in the New Testament. Uh, The canon, the canon, which is basically the uh, authoritative list, it's a you know legitimate list uh, that's been set in Protestant circles for quite a while. For Protestant circles, uh, those sixty six books are pretty steadfast: thirty nine Old Testament, twenty seven New Testament. There were debates over the years about whether certain books should or should not be included in the Bible. But uh, that 66-book list is pretty set in Protestant circles for, for quite a while. Now, the Catholic Bible is a little bit different. The Catholic Bible also includes the Apocrypha, the Apocrypha, which is a number of other books. It really doesn't have a set number. Um, I've seen 14 books in the Apocrypha. I've seen 17 books on the Apocrypha. Um, they're generally Old Testament related. There's not a lot of New Testament Apocrypha, um, especially those that are canonized by the Catholic Church. But most of the apocryphal books are not considered canon by Protestant groups. The ironic thing is, is that the original King James Bible had these apocryphal books in them. So books like the Maccabees, uh, Bell and the Dragon, Ecclesiasticals, all these other ones. Uh, I should also mention there's other bunch of ancient books running around. Um, There's like other, you know, there's the book of Enoch, that's a famous one. Uh, Other like ancient texts that are running around. Um, There's other gospels supposedly subscribed to um, other people around Jesus. Uh, They have different levels of canonity throughout the other Bibles. Uh, Different groups have different levels of canon behind that. Um, likewise, if you include Mormonism as part of this, uh, Mormonism has, I think, five books. There's the Book of Mormon, Pearl of Great Christ, uh, Doctrines. There, there's a couple other books that are part of the Mormon Bible, which includes the Old and New Testament. Not the Apocrypha, but these other Mormon books. So it gets really complicated. Uh, the Jewish Bible, mainly the Torah is the Old Testament. Uh well, the Old Testament is the Jewish Bible. Uh, some Jews only recognize the Torah, which is the first five books. Others include something called the Talmud, which is an oral Torah of Jewish traditions that most Christians don't consider at all to be canon if they even know it exists. So there's a lot of different beliefs about what is and isn't canon. Um, in general, though, I would say the 66 books of the Protestant Bible are what are accepted by pretty much everything. Uh, I can't think of anything that Protestants believe is canonical that... Catholics don't also believe it's canonical, or Mormons don't believe it's canonical, but there's stuff within Catholicism and Mormonism which a lot of Protestant groups don't consider to be canonical. So just know, whenever you say Bible, it depends on whose Bible and which translation, and it gets really, really complicated after that. Um, I should also mention the Bible itself was compiled over God, several hundred years, almost thousand years, by several different authors who may or may not have been aware of each other, um, uh, I think most importantly, whenever you're talking about the uh, the New Testament, they don't know the other books of the New Testament. E- even if you look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, even something like the Old Testament wasn't hundred percent set during that time period. So like, whenever Paul's writing, he, he doesn't know about the Gospels because actually Paul wrote before the Gospels were written. So it, yeah, and oh I-, I should also mention the language of the Bible, uh, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in Greek, with portions of it that were transliterated from Aramaic. Jesus, if Jesus existed, almost certainly spoke Aramaic, but he knew Greek. Sorry, he knew Hebrew. Um, not sure if he knew Greek or not. He probably didn't know Greek. Well, I mean, he was God, so he probably knew all the language, but he probably didn't speak Greek. Yeah, he, he, he almost certainly spoke, well, he certainly spoke Aramaic, more than likely knew Hebrew, um, but... The vernacular that Jesus was speaking was almost certainly Aramaic. So there are portions of the New Testament, wherever they're quoting Jesus, which are in Aramaic. Uh, But the New Testament was written, by and large, in Hebrew. And interestingly enough, in the New Testament, if they are referencing Old Testament books, they are actually referencing a Hebrew translation, the Septuagint, of the Old Testament. So, yes, it's very complicated. Alright, cool. Uh, another big belief, the Trinity. Now, the Trinity is one that I said before, it's never explicitly mentioned in the Bible. The Trinity is never explicitly mentioned in the Bible, but pretty much all Protestant and Catholic sects believe in the Trinity. Um, you'd be hard-pressed to find a non-Trinitarian church. Uh, most non-Trinity churches, sorry, most churches that deny the Trinity, that's a really good quick way to be labeled a heretic. Really quick way to be labeled a heretic by other Christian churches as saying, I don't believe in the Trinity. Now, in essence, uh, the belief in the Trinity says that God is made up of three distinct parts. Uh, God is three, three in one, the, the, you know, the uh, tri-God. You have God the Father, like creator of the universe, Old Testament God. You have God the Son, so Jesus. And then you have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a depersonified element that in the New Testament comes in to aid believers after Jesus' departure. And basically, most Christians believe that God is made up of those three different parts. Now, how these groups, like, interact with each other, manifest, that's very different upon the group. For instance, some, like the Pentecostals, are really big on the Holy Spirit. They are very big on the Holy Spirit, believe in everyday miracles, that, like, you know, the Holy Spirit is constantly at work and performing miracles, and even ordinary folks can do all sorts of miraculous things. Other denominations, like Episcopalians or mainline denominations, uh, barely mention things like the Holy Spirit or are saved in passing. So it's, like I said, that manifests in a lot of different ways and a lot of different time periods, but most Christians believe in some form of Trinity. All right, the next term, salvation. Uh, Salvation is another kind of loaded term that really gets really pushed on various groups more than others. Uh, Salvation refers to the action of becoming a Christian, all right? Uh, Christianity is generally a religion of conversion. Most Christian denominations don't believe one can be born and stay complete within Christianity, Though not impossible, uh, depending on the denomination, but the action of one becoming a Christian, one gaining one's salvation, uh, can be wildly different. Uh, some denominations are really big on like dramatic conversion experiences, uh, this uh, this vernacular of getting saved. You know, one recognizes their sins and turns away from those sins in a dramatic fashion. Others are less dramatic, with something like you know infant baptism, uh, signifying one's adherence to Christianity. Uh, I would say most churches agree that conversion is a fine and acceptable way to become a Christian, uh, like an adult conversion, but some say it's the only way to become a Christian. Others are bigger on infant baptism. It just depends. Um, American churches, though, have really pushed salvation and conversion as an adult, uh, primarily shown through the various Great Awakenings, but we're going to get into that. And also, I should say, most, if not all, Christian sects believe that Jesus is a central figure in salvation, either by an action of grace or acceptance of his sacrifice on the cross, that sort of stuff. Okay, another term is um, baptism. Baptism, it is actually mentioned in the Bible a couple times. It's a pretty important ritual that signifies conversion. Basically, you know, a person gets baptized to signify their conversion. Now, it gets way more complicated about when do you do it because that gets complicated. Um, it does involve water. It does involve water. That's about the only thing that really is amongst all Christian sects is it involves water. Um, you can be sprinkled over the head with water. You can be dunked, uh, you know, submerged in water. It can be done as a baby. It can be done as an adult. It can be something that gets, like, really pushed, like you can't become a member of this church or be you consider yourself a Christian until you get baptized, or other denominations might rarely have ever do it. Yeah, it gets really complicated after that. Uh, You could probably also include something like the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper in this time period. That's another ritual that uh, really differs from church to church. Some do it all the time. Some never do it. Basically, before Jesus um, was killed, he said, drink bread and eat wine. Drink bread and eat wine. Woo! Eat bread and drink wine in remembrance of me. Um, Is the wine alcoholic? Is it not alcoholic? I think it's very complicated. All right. Uh, The final point we're going to get into is afterlife. Afterlife. Uh, Most Christian sects believe that Christians will go to heaven at some point after death. Now, it involves eternal life. You know, basically, you you live forever, which is nice. Although, what all happens during eternity is debated. Uh, Some sects believe that, you know, you just basically worship God the entire time. Others believe that, like, there's a new heaven and earth that gets made, and, like, we will be joint, well, Christians will be joint rulers of this new heaven and earth. They will rule with God. Um, I know Mormonism, like, some believe that you're a very good adherent. You become kind of like the god of your own world, that sort of shtick. Uh, but basically, most Christian sects believe that you know, the, the righteous go to heaven. Now, it gets way more complicated when you talk about what happens to those who don't go to heaven or what happens to non-Christians. Uh, for instance, Catholics believe in purgatory, where certain people can atone for their sins. Even after death, um, it's basically kind of a, a place of uh, atonement. Basically, you know, work through and get one's sins uh, removed before you can go into heaven. Uh, some believe in some form of hell, which is basically where sinners are separated from God for eternity. Now, that gets way more complicated because whether the soul of the individual is conscious during the separation is very debated. Like, is a soul in hell aware that they're in hell? Are they consciously suffering for all eternity? Uh, some believe in annihilation, which basically means that those who are not in heaven are going to simply cease to exist. Like, you know, their hell is they no longer exist, period. Like, they have no more soul, they are removed. Others believe that um, souls are all too aware of their own damnation in hell. That gets really complicated really quick. Also, timing gets really complicated, too. Uh, some believe that you know, as soon as one dies, they immediately go to heaven or judgment right after death. Others believe that uh, the soul will quote-unquote sleep. Basically, you go into a deep slumber until the day of judgment where everybody gets their eternal destiny at the same time. Really gets complicated. Really gets very complicated very quick. But I would say believe in some sort of afterlife for for Christians or you know the righteous is I don't not quite universal in Christianity, but close to it, what happens to everybody else, that gets really complicated. So, in conclusion, I will admit today was pretty remedial, but I do want to take the time to get into the basics. So by the time we get to 1607, when the English first established Jamestown, Protestantism was pretty much the dominant religion of England. Yes, the Anglican Church was kind of going through some stuff, trying to separate itself from Catholicism, and therefore it's going to become the future the same in the future United States. Um, the United States as it is, you know, the United States of America, not America as a whole continent because then you have like English and, you know, sorry, you have French and Spanish and Native American influence. We are talking about the United States of America, you know, our current form of government, that is a direct descendant of the English colonies. Now that said, this was very remedial, but feel free to ask me basic questions. I, I want you to ask me questions that you think are simple. I don't want to assume that you know all these terms or concepts, or don't assume that your classmates know that you either. Um, I will never shame you or your classmates for asking me like, hey, you just said this churchy word, what are we talking about here? I know I, com- I compressed a lot of different stuff. I mean, I barely mentioned the crucifixion, for instance, which is a really major thing in Christian circles. But this is very basic stuff that hopefully you understand. Like I said, if you are religiously minded, it's probably very remedial. You probably have some disagreements with some other definitions. That's perfectly okay. But like I said, if there are things you're not too familiar with, feel free to ask me. So with that, this is Dr. Tully for History 490.